at the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Curiosity Habit Podcast. Uh, my name is Kevin Eva. I'm a scientist at the Center for Health Education Scholarship at the University of British Columbia. And my name is undoubtedly not the one you expected to hear. My, my voice is undoubtedly not the one you expected to hear when you clicked on this. Um, but I'm filling in today as host for Sarah Cristancho uh, because I, I thought it's beyond time that somebody interviews Sarah herself. Um, by my count, Sarah's posted about 40 podcasts in this space, but uh, really has never had the chance to tell her own story, which uh, I think you're going to find is, is one of the most compelling uh, that's out there. Uh, so, Sarah, I, I realize that you don't need any introduction in this context, uh, but for the sake of uh, anybody who's new to the podcast, do you, do you mind introducing yourself? For sure. Thank you, Kevin. I'm so grateful and excited to be part of this episode. I have no idea what's to come for our, our mm -hmm. listeners. I don't know the question, so we'll see how it goes. But yes, I'm Saira Cristancho. I'm a scientist at the Center for Education, Research and Innovation at Western University, uh, originally from Colombia, uh, immigrated to Canada. Actually, it's going to be 20 years. Um, and came to Western University about 12 years ago. So I'll leave it at that for now, and then we can have more conversations. That's great, and, and I'll happily keep you in the dark for a little while in terms of where this conversation uh, is going to lead. Um, but but you started this podcast uh, with the goal, uh, as I understand it, of bringing listeners to the stories uh, that make researchers in medical education. Uh, and I, I asked you for the opportunity to flip the script uh, or, or to perform a not-so-hostile takeover, I suppose, um, because of a presentation that you delivered this summer uh, mm -hmm. that, that all of a sudden, to me, just made something click in terms of uh, better understanding both your research, but also why you've been so fascinated with how people's personal stories mm -hmm. uh, connect into the research that they do. Um, so just to get started, can we go back to the beginning? And you know, again, one of the things is I remember from that presentation was was your description of of your family and and its size first and foremost. Um, okay. but 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 how how strongly it uh, played a formative role on, on who you've become. So just love to have you replicate some of that conversation about what it was like growing up in Colombia. Yeah, for sure. So in that presentation, I, I, I mentioned that um, I'm so interested in understanding how people navigate disruption in their lives and, and especially how they do it as a collective or as, a, or as groups. And my personal connection to that is that first, I grew up in a very large family. My mom is one of 16 children and my dad is one of 12. And that made for like a really big bunch of cousins and aunts and uncles. And so I'm always being surrounded by people. I'm always being uh, in this situation where whenever thing, something happens to someone, uh, people are always willing. There's someone, someone around to help and trying to do stuff. So um, the, the notion of collective is pretty much ingrained in my life. Uh, and the other part of the story is that I grew up in, in Colombia, which in, 
I was born in the 70s, but the 80s and 90s was when I was in my teenager years. And that was probably the worst uh, time uh, in Colombia for its history socially. We had the, the guerrilla issue and we also had the drug cartel issue going on. And it was a very profound way of growing up to me that I didn't realize until after, because once you are immersed in your own bubble and you don't have perspective from other people, from other countries, then you realize that there's more to life than that. So the biggest memories for me is the reason we, and I say we, my brother and my sister and I, study so much and kind of earn so many educational titles is because there was nothing else to do at the time. Uh, bombs were exploding everywhere. People were killed all the time. Uh, I remember one of my, my parents' most um, biggest concern was us leaving the house to go to school and not knowing if we were going to come back because you never knew when a bomb was going to explode. The city I grew up in was not as um, horrible as other cities like Medellin or Bogota. Mine was more like a mid-sized city, but still we got hit sometimes. And, and one of the biggest memories for me was a bomb that exploded like about three blocks away from, from our house. And the, the, the memory for me is the explosion and then looking around and seeing the mushroom in the sky and us trying to look for shelter in the house and, and trying to look for each other and what's going on. We didn't know the confusion. So that was one um, very striking memory. And the other one, which was very striking for me because um, not so much of the violence themselves, but because it happened to my mom. She was kidnapped uh, for about 24 hours. My mom was a high school teacher. She worked in the high, sorry, in the adult education system, which means these are people who go to work and then come to high school to do their profession, their, their degrees, a high school degree. And one day the guerrilla came to the school and as a protest kind of thing. And they took a bunch of people from the school to the mountains. And my mom happens to be one of those people. And they kept them for about 24 hours. Uh, and to me, I think I was about 10 or 12 years old. So I remember a lot and, and also the emotions and then seeing my dad trying to keep us in a, in an emotional state that was okay, but also trying to figure things out with my uncles and my aunts and everybody. And I think one of the biggest concerns was that one, one of my mom's brothers at the time was running for mayor in a small city there. So we thought it was going to be a political kidnap and we were so scared because we, know, we knew what happened to political uh, hostages. They usually get in the mountains for years or they are never released or it's horrible things that we, we knew. Thank God, uh, I think the people didn't know about it because she was released with the other bunch of people that they took to the mountain. So that was a pretty lucky moment and it was so good to have her back. But those experiences have stuck with me all my life, has given me a lot to think about in relation to life, in relation to not taking things for granted, in relation to appreciating my parents and my family. I know nobody is perfect, but in, in the darkest moment, those are the people that are just around you. And then we learn to, to just hold on that. And that's kind of the center of, of our whole family. Even though my brother lives in Australia, my sister lives in Colombia, and I live here, we're very tight. I think it comes from those years of growing up in, in uncertainty um, and not knowing what was going to happen day by day and having my mom in that situation. So that's kind of what I described during that presentation and 
the beginning of the story. Yeah, and, and again, just everybody listening, I'm sure, can can now appreciate why uh, I, I started by saying this was one of the most compelling that, that we'll hear in our field. Those those moments must have been absolutely terrifying. And I'm curious about um, your thoughts on, on how the turmoil impacted your family as a collective to use the term that that you described it with you know in in many ways i can imagine everything that was swirling around you would have made for a very insular sort of family life where whereas you said oftentimes people were afraid to leave the house yet with i think you said 28 aunts and uncles uh, spread around were you able to actually physically connect with them yeah, once in a while, my dad's family uh, live in a completely different part of the country. So with his family, it was harder uh, because it required taking a plane or, or driving. And at that time, it was so bad that the idea of having a vacation of driving to the beach or uh, going anywhere for a kind of holiday was no, no, no. You wouldn't leave the city. Like, God forbids you leave the city because you never know what happens. And I don't want to be too dramatic, but... But that to me was the extent to which we became so tight because it was years and years until we were able to have a holiday, like a traveling holiday. Like our holidays were staying home, basically. Like vacation at the school was staying home. That, that was it for a number of years. But with my mom's family, all of them live in the same city. So we, we kept in touch. Um, we got reunions. Like as I, I said, our city was not struck as badly. Uh, so in the moments in which you kind of measure the temperature of the, of the country by the news. So when things were a little bit, we, we figured things were a little bit stable, then we would gather and do some celebrations. And especially when my grandfather was alive, he was kind of the center of the family. So everybody flocked around him. So his birthday was very important and we would get together. Uh, it was not that many, but, but we tried to, and on the phone was always a, uh, a connection for us and yeah but we became insular the five of us but it still maintained the connections because my grandfather lived with us uh, I, I i don't have a memory of my family without my grandfather mm. so my grandfather came to live with us when i was two so it's he it was he was the center of the bigger family so everybody will come and visit him yeah right and and what what lessons come to mind when you think about what he brought into your life and, and what having him so close by uh, might have done to influence the path that you wound up following? Yeah, it's, it's, I think about this a lot because uh, he, I, I have a really, how do I say, a phone for older people. And I think it's because of him. Uh, he, li- he came to live with us when I was two because my grandmother passed away uh, at 60. So he came to live with us when we were very young. He chose to be with us because of my mom. My mom and him were very tight and he would say the only person I will live with was my mom. And thank God my dad lost his mom when he was 11 uh, and then lost his father. So I I didn't meet my grandparents from my dad's side. So my mom's dad became kind of the dad figure for my dad. And they they were really tight too. So that that was lucky. But having him around, and I have thought about this a lot, um, has given us, again, my brother, my sister, and I, this lesson about the not being the center of the universe kind of thing, because we always had to do something for him. 
Like my mom was very clear that there were chores that we were doing for my grandfather. So for instance, my, my sister was in charge of breakfast. My brother was in charge of um, organizing his, his bedroom. I was, this is a funny one, I was in charge of getting up at 6 a.m. on Sundays and turning on the TV so he could watch <laughs> the mass. <laughs> so, and then I, I did uh, dinner for him. So we, each of us had chores that were very much around taking care of my grandfather, which I think was a way for my parents to teach us that we were not the center of the universe. And this thing was not about, this thing, family was not about us because we were the children. There were people beyond us. And my grandfather was very grounded and um, short words, not too many words, but when he will say something, you will listen. It was, that was a kind of a personality he was. Uh, he was very strict, um, but it was kind of, of the idea that you only talk when you have something to say, as opposed to just go out and do whatever you want. Mm. So it has taught me also the value of listening. I remember many of um, his uh, nephews also coming and visit once in a while, and he will take him to his room and close the door and have conversations with them. God knows what, what was that about. Uh, mm -hmm. But it was mostly like people seeking out or reaching out to him when he was not a big conversationalist. So I took that as he might be a really good listener. Mm -hmm. So I sometimes don't do it well, but I try to remember those, those lessons of try not to make myself the center of the universe, think about what other people are going through. The other thing was through my cousins, uh, it's also the experience that when I go through really bad situations, think about other people having even worse situations. So I give you an example, what my oldest cousin actually, and I think I mentioned this in the presentation. Uh, she has a large family and she has lost five people in her close family. Two children, no, three children, one grandchild and one great-grandchild. That to me, just losing one child is enough to make you crazy. So I cannot even imagine losing five. So, and you talk to her and you have no idea that has happened to her because she's the happiest person ever that I've met. So when I'm going through really tough situations, I remember her as someone who has been able to overcome those things so my situation is not as bad as her so that's kind of keeping me on my on my feet and I remember my grandfather about this calm demeanor listening all the time not taking things for granted that's kind of are the lessons that I have reflected especially in the moments when I'm going through <laughs> really bad things that mm -hmm. I sometimes ask why me kind of question <laughs> Yeah, well, and those are all lessons that we should probably build into the curriculum as as researchers and scientists and listening, not making oneself the center and and uh, the the other things you just listed. So, so it sounds like it was uh, well heeded by you, given your your success as a scientist. Um, I want to come back to those moments when you weren't doing chores, and and you said oftentimes, uh, you know things outside were such that you really had nothing to do but study. Uh, what subjects or what topics were you drawn to uh, when when you were you know, in that mode? I was, I think, um, okay, you need to know, as I said, my mom was a teacher. So being the, ch the child of a teacher makes you grow up in a certain way. She was very structured. Um, I remember at six years old, She's sitting like the six years old for us was grade one. 
And that was my first day in school. And I came back with homework and I had like four or five things to do. And she asked me to create a table where I was going to tell her when I'm going to start doing every activity and where I was going to stop for the afternoon because I wanted to watch the Muppets. Uh, yeah. So if I wanted to watch that, I had to finish my homework. So that was the beginning of time management skills right there. Um, so in terms of the topics, I was pretty much interested in most topics, but I think the ones that really fascinated me was history. Uh, and that came from a book that my dad gave me. It was a, a I remember it was a, a, such a little book, very thin, but it contained all the world history. And it taught history in a very storytelling fashion and I got fascinated by history. So that's, I think if I hadn't become an engineer, history would have been a, a place to go. It was not a possibility. And I'll tell you why in a moment, uh, but history is one of those. When I was about 10, uh, or I can't remember when it was in the 86, when the, the comet Halley came to earth, then I wanted to be an astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> So things like that fascinated me. But when I was in high school, it was mostly around history. And the reason I said it was not an option is because part of also growing up, when I the time came to finish high school and choosing university, uh, there was a big um, social issues where around the country, many universities closed because uh, there was so much violence inside and outside the, the university. So in my city, basically the only three options I had was medical school, engineering, or law. I wanted to be in medical school, like medicine attracted me in some way. I, I was able to pass the first exam and then they closed the university. So it, I had to wait like about two years to go back. Uh, my parents said like, no way, we cannot yeah. afford having you doing nothing for two years. So the options of engineering and law came and I'm definitely not for a lawyer. So I chose <laughs> engineering. And then uh, in my decision, I, I learned that there was this area at the time, not very well known, biomedical engineering. So I thought eventually one day I was going to go back to my initial interest in, around medicine. And I did it in a different way, not really going to medical school, but but that was kind of the way I kind of waved around until I, I came back to medicine. Well, and, and engineering is a bit like medical education or, or in my case, psychology, where it's a simple label that encapsulates a lot of different things. Uh, what, what was it within engineering that, that uh, you know, kept you on that track as opposed to reverting when you had the opportunity? I think it was a professor. Uh, I think it was probably year because we have five years in undergrad in Colombia so year four I had a, a professor it was not even in biomedical engineering it was um, a topic called electronics instrumentation which is about designing sensors for sensoring stuff and, and so uh, you're still in Colombia at this point I was yeah I was that's that was my undergrad so I did my undergrad and my master's in Colombia before I came to Canada so that was fourth year of my undergrad and, and this professor um, gave me the opportunity to become a research assistant for him. And he was very sick. He was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And he, I didn't ask for the job, so which showed me that it was a small university, so everybody knew everybody. And I was a pretty good student. So I think he was observing me since the beginning. And he asked me to be his research assistant instead of me applying. And to me, it was like, 
like why? Um, and then through the experience of, first of all, like that really touched me personally because I, I've never thought that, I never thought that he was paying attention to who I am and what I was doing. And that told me that everybody's looking at you regardless. Um, and then he gave me projects that were more geared towards biomedical instrumentation. He knew I had that interest because he asked that in the first day of, of the class. Uh, so eventually I became more and more interested in, in the biomedical side of medicine, like the technological side of medicine. Uh, and it was through him basically that he told me about this area of biomedicine as opposed to medicine itself and how that was going to become a trend later on and that medicine would become more technologically driven and that would be a good career opportunity for me. And I stay on that. And then um, also through my grades, I, I got a scholarship to do the math, a master's. And it was, um, the opportunity was to do a master's in electrical engineering in the biomedical area. So basically interest, but also opportunities that couldn't, I couldn't say no because my parents couldn't pay. It was impossible for me to go to grad, graduate school without a scholarship. And I was lucky that I was offered that. So that took me into that path. And from there to the PhD uh, was just a direct connection. And then the, the more drastic change happened after my PhD when I moved away from engineering to here. Yeah, well, and that is a very drastic change. How, how does one get from engineering into medical education? So <laughs> very um, not planned, I have to say. <laughs> so I, I did my PhD at UBC. I was hoping to stay after I finished my PhD. Things didn't work out. Went back to Colombia uh, for two years. My original plan was not to stay in Canada, but life changes. And I really wanted to stay in Canada, but then the opportunity didn't come. So I went back to Colombia. I worked for three years in Colombia. And then I was getting frustrated because I was like at the time, not frustrated with someone is more like the situation. Again, the country was much better, but we were on the uphill trying to recover. Things were nicer. People were living more comfortable, but the priorities were about getting people education, getting back the social system, all, all the basic stuff in a society, as opposed to aiming for the higher priorities of research development that was not there yet for Colombia. So the, the job that I joined uh, that I was doing in Colombia was mostly teaching and I was missing the research component. So I was getting frustrated about the situation of not being able to enjoy the research part. So one day, funny enough, my best friend who I met in, in my PhD emailed me and said, hey, there is this um, postdoc opportunity at U of T. It sounds like you. And it was a postdoc about um, simulation in nursing. And, and this was with a, a medical education researcher, Adam Dubrowski, who was at U of T. So I sent my, my resume and it just so happens that he has seen a presentation that I delivered at a conference before. So he kind of knew my work and I was like, oh, wow, that's, that's pretty good. So he gave me the opportunity and I came back to Canada to a, for a postdoc at U of T in the area of simulation-based education. But I was doing simulation. I was building stuff still. We were doing this um, mannequin to, to simulate cardiac surgery. So it was very much in the engineering combined with beginning to learn a little bit more about um, education research. And then the opportunity at Western came out. Um, Adam was part of the Wilson Center and he said, this sounds like you. So I applied and 
long story short, I eventually got the job, not at the beginning, but I got the job and I came back. And then that was the second biggest transition, moving from engineering kind of quantitative research to qualitative research, which is another part of the story. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and just maybe before we get to that part of the story, it, it sounds very much like like your life has been filled with openness to opportunity and and sort of flexible adaptation wherever the the uh, you know opportunities arose. Um, was was is it was it simply necessity or did 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 you uh, just have something in your in your own background or interests that that made you so willing to uh, sort of shift back and forth based on where there seemed to be opportunities and and encouragement? Well, it's a great question (laughs) because I was not the type of person who will jump on opportunities like that. Um, I'm very structured thinker. I like to plan everything, even though I now know that plans don't go the way they are, but I just feel something good for me to have a plan at least. Systems engineering, that seems to fit. (laughs) But I think it was, uh, and it was a pretty hard time in my life and it was a shake from my mom. And, and as you can tell now, my parents are very key in my life. Uh, it was basically as if she was taking me by my shoulders and had shaken me up and that changed me. And the, what happened was that I came to Canada to start my PhD. I thought I, I, I was very excited about the experience of coming to a different country. I chose to come to a non-Spanish speaking country because I really wanted to hone my English. I wanted to really polish my English. I had learned e- English in Colombia. My, my parents put me on Saturdays morning uh, to study English at a particular institute. So I had a pretty good understanding, mostly uh, grammar and writing was, was pretty good, I would say. The speaking part was harder because I never left Colombia to learn English. So, but I thought I could make it. So I was driven to come to Canada by the excitement of, I'm going to go into a PhD, it's an English speaking, like the possibilities. I was just, I was 24 or something. Yeah, around that. So like the, the idea of cultural shock or challenges of what are the potential uh, downsides of going never crossed my mind. I was just so excited. Like I was a dreamer. And I remember arriving at two in the morning in Vancouver, went to St. John's College at UBC, sat down in, in my bed and the, everything dawned on me. Like, what have I done? Like, mm-hmm. it was like thousands of kilometers away from my home that I hadn't lived, left ever, basically. So that was, that took me into a, a year of, I will call it at this point depression because I was not diagnosed, but I'm pretty sure it was that. I was not eating. I was crying all the time. I lost like 15 kilos. Like it was just horrible. So one day about a year after, I was not doing well. It was very overwhelming because I never thought about those shocks. I couldn't understand. I arrived to my room every day with headaches because it was so hard for me to understand my professors. so one day I called my mom and I said, I'm done. I'm, I'm quitting. I'm leaving this. This is not for me. I can't do it. And my mom, God bless her, because that was a risky move. Um, and I still remember her words. She said, we never told you to quit. We always told you to finish what you started. So if you're going to quit now, just rest assured that there is no space for you here. 
So you need to find a place to go because you're not coming to this house. I was like, what's going on? Mm. But interestingly enough, when I reflect about that, I was not mad at her. I was something just clicked inside my head that it just turned my, my whole life around. And within a matter of a month, I was back on my feet. I, I Of course, I didn't go back because I didn't know where to go, what to do. So I stayed and then my friends at the residence were so good. They helped me a lot. Uh, this is the, the value of having really good people around you. But that moment when she told me that, told me that was pivotal in my life. And since then, I became the person where, okay, that sounds interesting. I can do it. Like if you talk to my some of my colleagues here, they said, you don't seem to be afraid about trying things out. And I went, what's to lose? But it became, it didn't come naturally. It just took a, a really big shake from, and I think it was that moment because from that moment on, I became a little more open-minded, a little more willing to take risks, a little more uh, open to, yeah, we'll see what happens and mm-hmm. try it. If it doesn't work, well, find another way, figure it out. It still is hard, but that. Yeah. No doubt, and and a truly risky move on the part of your mom, but that that clearly worked out, and and not not just in terms of keeping you um, sort of pushing forward, but uh, the the qualitative research that you're uh, now dominantly working on that that you alluded to a moment ago, uh, that seems in many ways to be the antithesis to systems engineering and that you have to remain flexible and open to to where things lead you um how, how did you sort of wrap your head around that translation in terms of relative to the work that you've been doing academically beforehand well when i came to western uh, i didn't know about qualitative research because all my life had been uh, engineering and then i started to well this is a very qualitative driven group. <laughs> so I landed in this group and then I started to read about qualitative research which felt to me like learning a completely new language. I had no idea. The words didn't make sense to me. I had no definitions. It was hard. But one thing that I think um, was significant for me was the interviewing. The, when I learned about interviews and how to conduct interviews, that took me back to my undergrad because, and I think I told some people about this, my undergrad in Colombia was more like a trainer training to be a designer more than to be the builder, if, if you know what I mean. And by, by that, I mean, I guess, designer is because we were given projects in which we had to talk to people about their, their requirements that a design needed in order to be completed. So one example is go to a factory and chat with the different people at different shifts, 8 to 12, 12 to 6, 6 to 12, and every person will use the same machine. So how are you going to design a machine that will adapt to the requirements of three different people? So we will have to go and talk to those people and make sure that their requirements were fulfilling the design. So when I was interviewing people for research initially, when I first tried um, qualitative research, it, it struck me as something that I already knew kind of how to do and that, that I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it, that part of my engineering. So that was the first kind of, okay, I, I kind of like this. And then, then after that was a whole learning of my own, um, trying to overcome the imposter syndrome of not having done a PhD in qualitative research. 
it was it was long. It was it took me about two years to really feel comfortable in my own skin, even though I didn't have the formal training, but understanding that self-training is also okay. And I have to say one pivotal conversation that I had that helped me to process this transition was with Glenn, Glenn Rager. Um, we met at a conference and he asked me, oh, yeah, what, what is your main challenge or something like that? And I said, well, I'm, I'm trying to become a qualitative researcher like the people at the center. And then he goes, okay, let me ask it differently. What do you think an engineering like you can bring to medical education? And it got me thinking and thinking. And he said, like, the point is that you don't have to become someone else. If you are writing to this community, it's more about the question, I am different. I'm coming from a different discipline. What is it that I can bring to the community that might be useful? So that's that shifting in mindset helped me to start thinking, okay, what is an engineering that I can bring here or translate or transport that might be helpful? So that's when the rich pictures method that I used to use in engineering arrived into medical education. But it was a it was a personal transformation of abandoning the idea of trying to become someone or something that I, I was not, and rather thinking what I am, what can I bring to be useful in this community? And it was thanks to Glenn and that question. Amazing. And and so when you think about the the topics to which you now apply rich picture methodology or any of the other strategies that you use, um, what is it that drives your curiosity and in, into particular uh, study directions? When I did my first uh, study, uh, I was not yet on the disruption kind of uh, idea. It was more about understanding how people work in the operating room because my clinical appointment was in surgery. So surgery automatically became the context. Um, and we used, I, I, I was very lucky that three of the most senior surgeons in Western agreed to collaborate with me. And they opened me the doors to be able to introduce the method, to be able to introduce qualitative research to, to a group that was not um, familiar with. And we did the first study. And the things that I started to see that also surprised them, which is I was hoping that I was going to get a lot of the requirement procedural information on how to do a, a surgery, like how to make decisions in relation to a procedure will come mostly from the, from the technical aspect. And then when they started to tell us stories about the, the organizational issues, the personal issues, the social issues, the interpersonal ones, uh, which totally relates to systems engineering, I was very glad to see. And number two, it gave me the sense that the stories are richer than than most people think, especially when are, when they are concerned with topics that are hard to express. So if I ask, I tried asking the surgeons about those other dimensions without the rich picture, it was going nowhere. Like they were just not able to stay in the interpersonal story, for instance. It will always go back to the technical and procedural. But when we use the drawings, it became kind of the, the anchor through which they were able to reveal more of those additional aspects of how to do surgery. So that was kind of the first realization that told me, hmm, there is a lot of things to do with this method that, that we can explore, especially for topics that are difficult to express, that are very emotionally driven, that are um, hard to get deep uh, into in having people to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Well, and and again, you 
the words collective early on talking about your family background you just repeated the word disruption which is a clear reminder of of the the life that you're living growing up um how is it that you started to connect those things with the actual surgical education uh, activities that you're observing and, and again just uh wondering about your your thought process or the path that you took that that made you curious about why or if those concepts were were particularly relevant as you were trying to figure out what you had to bring to medical education right so when i started doing this research of course because i was still learning then uh, the first say two or three years all my research was around the individual so an individual surgeon doing a surgery and making decisions it was a strategic and I'm going to mention Laura Leilinger for the strategic thinking and teaching me how to do those, how to make those decisions. She's been fantastic as a mentor in helping me create a career that progresses slowly and comfortable for me. Well, not comfortable in the way of easy, but comfortable in the way of progression. But uh, one of her advices was let's start small. And by small was start with the person. I had in the back of my mind this idea of I wanna I wanna explore how people work together, but it was too much of a leap for me to do it at the beginning when I didn't have the skills yet of interviewing, doing qualitative analysis, learning the methodologies. I had I was doing that in parallel with doing research. I learned by doing. So the best way to do that was by starting a small, focusing on one individual, the surgeon, focusing on using only interviews at the beginning, focusing on understanding the basics of qualitative research. But the still the interest was in the back of my mind. As I progressed and I became more skilled in the qualitative paradigm, then the opportunity to move from the individual to the team uh, was not difficult to make because I already had the interest, but I began in the stories that we collected as individuals, there was always a mention of others. So it's the surgeon, but there was a mention of the resident, of the nurse, of course, because they're working together. So I was really hungry to be able to explore those interactions. Uh, that from the, the transition from individual to, um, from, to the group. The, the disruption piece, interestingly enough, happened before COVID uh, in the sense that I was more fascinated with, for instance, surgeries or situations in which things will go wrong, something will happen. And from my engineering background, I knew about this safety to approach to patient safety, which is about looking at successes as opposed to failures and errors. And I really wanted to explore that. I, and it's connected back to, to my personal stories in the sense that I'm more interested about people who go through disruption and manage to thrive um, and still be happy and successful. So I wanted to focus on the successful side of teamwork when things don't go the way that they want to go. That was kind of how I, I frame it at the beginning. Then um, when I started to, and then the word adaptation came in into my research, trying to understand how teams adapt to complex or difficult situations. That's how I was framing it at the time. And then um, in my literature exploration about team adaptation, I got this sense that it was always about putting individuals together as opposed to looking at the collective as a whole. 
And as I mentioned in, in the presentation too, that took me into another set of literature, which is the biology literature, where the word team was not as eminent as the word collective. So then learning about collective in collective behavior in social insects was more about the collective because as individuals, they don't do anything. So that got, got me fascinated about collective and also um, the fact that they only work well when the environment is disruptive. So disruption started to come up as, as a term in my research. And then COVID hit. <laughs> and then we did um, a study about interviewing healthcare providers about they, how they adapted to the different COVID challenges on the ground. Uh, and the word implosive adaptation, disruption, that, that terminology just came out naturally from people. So during COVID, I started to develop more my research program, my language, and that's where I landed. So it's not that long ago that I crafted the language and then everything kind of fell in place because I went, well, disruption is what I've lived growing up. Mm -hmm. Collective is how I grew up. So then put the two things together and then even myself, I'm going, oh, makes sense. Finally. <laughs> <laughs> well, and again, showing an adaptability as, as yeah. unexpected things arise and, and, and you changed uh, course. So it, it has me thinking about you know, the the path that you've gone on and the advice you've gotten from so many different people. Um, it's clearly not the case that somebody who were to come to you and say, how do I be a good medical education researcher or how do I get in the field to, to begin with, let alone being good at it, um, you, you, you're not going to tell anybody to take the path that you took. Um, so, so what is the the top piece of advice that you give to others who are curious about how to get into the field? I was I will I will borrow Glenn's advice on that in terms of if you have a taste of medical education research, either as a PhD student or a master's student, and you think you you would like to be part of this community is to begin to think about what you bring, who you are and what you bring to the table. In the sense, what is it that I have or I learned in my experiences that might be different that can contribute to what's going on in the community, as opposed to trying to become someone else's. We are a small community, so well, not anymore, it's really small, but it's small enough to start creating kind of your heroes and the people that you look up to, which is totally fine because you always need to have those kind of role models to aspire to do something different. But I think one of the, the aspects that I have reflected just because I went through the path of trying to become someone else and then realized that that's not what life is about. It's more about what is it that inspired me from that person that I can borrow and make it my own with what I am and who I am. So I would say it's asking the question of, what can I bring as a person? And then after that is, is uh, connecting, is uh, having conversations with people. Um, and it's not just the people that are senior to you, also the people around you, your clinical colleagues, uh, listening to stories. That, that kind of connections helps a lot, in my opinion. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great advice. And, and so is there, uh, by way of wrapping up, is there, Anything else that you think people should be curious about or any any other uh, uh, insights or, or, or uh, ideas that, that you'd, you'd like to share given you have the opportunity? Well, I'm really looking forward to the next stage. Right now I'm on sabbatical. So this is my first sabbatical and I'm looking forward to do things differently. I'm going to explore 
uh, the military setting more um, in, on these ideas of collective and disruption and the, the concepts that I'm borrowing from biology. I have found that the military healthcare setting is still healthcare, but in the military displays many of those attributes that I would like to learn more with the purpose of trying to translate back to the civilian setting. So one of the things that I'll be doing in the next year is uh, expose myself to a military base and observe people in action. And that, that kind of excites me because it's, it's a very different environment from a regular hospital is, I don't, I don't even know where I'm going. I just know that I have mm -hmm. to be in one place one day and they will take me to this other place to observe. So I'm excited about it. Uh, explore more about other contexts. I, I began to reach out to other industries as a way to learn lessons, not to replicate what other industries do because every industry has their own principles and ways of doing, but I believe in, in the power of cross-pollination and learning from each other. So business, music, uh, the military setting, paramedics, uh, emergency services. So I'm, I'm fascinated by listening to the stories in those settings too, that it's just eye-opening to me to keep perspective into, again, not, try not to stay in, in the bubble too, too in isolation, but look out, see what is good, what is not good, and then trying to, to bring it back and see what we can do. Sometimes some things might not work, some things might, but my belief is that it's not an, until you try that you will know. So I'm in that stage of, I'll try to see what I, where it takes me, where, it, where I go with that and, and then bring it back. Uh, that from, from my professional side, um, things that people might not know about me um, at this point is I really enjoy archery. And I am looking forward to train for an archery biathlon. And I'm saying this as a way of making me accountable. So if I say <laughs> to the public, it has to happen. So I, I want to do this. Um, it's kind of the regular biathlon, but running and, and shooting with arrows. So I'm training towards that hopefully next year. So that's one of the things that I enjoy doing on the side just to keep me. I really like it because it just puts my mind at ease. There is no way that I can think about anything else when I'm chewing arrows. <laughs> Otherwise, you go somewhere else. <laughs> That's amazing. It's, yeah. it's one of those sports that always seems to me like the, the most complex bringing together of, of two things, getting your heart rate up and keeping it calm yeah. all, the, all the same time. So uh, it actually reinforces for me the, the theme that I've been hearing much of what you've said about your capacity to to bring together you know, very distinct things and, and and make something good out of them. So uh, I'm, I'm thrilled that we had the opportunity to talk. Um, uh, you, you said some things might work and some things might not work in, in the research that you're planning i guarantee you some things won't work but but at the same time uh, you're given uh, all your success you've had to pulling loose threads together it, I, I can largely guarantee that that uh, listeners are going to want to look forward to to what comes out of your sabbatical activities so uh congratulations and uh we'll we'll see you on the next episode well thank you kevin i appreciated the conversation it was very very comfortable and and yes um 
looking forward to what's coming. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening as well. I hope it was good enough for this episode. <laughs> no, that's great. And thanks again for every, for letting me take over for a little bit. Uh, this is the Curiosity Habit podcast that you've been listening to. Uh, next time you hear it, there will be a much better interview behind the mic again. So, uh, Zyra, congratulations and thanks for the podcast and uh, bye to all. Thank you, Kevin. Bye, everyone. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Syra Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.